This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Finishing the Race of Life. In the first half, Thomas S. Monson shares his address, Guideposts for Life's Race. Then in the second half, Lynette B. Erickson speaks on flags, faith, and finishing the race. As we were taking our seats on the stand today, our associate, Brother Skousen, turned to me and said, uh, How long have you known Sister Monson? I thought back, A long time. And then I remembered our first date. You're young, you, my young brothers and sisters, you might appreciate this. I saw her on a dance floor at the University of Utah. I was dancing with a young lady from West High School. She was dancing with a young man from East High School. I saw her and thought, I've got to meet her. And then at the streetcar stop on 13th East, 2nd South, there she was one day. I learned the truth of a great statement. When the time for decision comes, the time for preparation is past. And we met each other on that streetcar. And then I called her for our first date. I went to her home, and her mother and father were all dressed up and uh, greeted me formally. And she said, This is Tom Monson. Her father said, uh, Is that a Swedish name? I said, Yes, sir. He said, Good. <laughs> and then he went into the bedroom and brought forth from the dresser drawer a picture of two missionaries in Sweden way back in about 1898, and they were carrying copies of the Book of Mormon. And he said, Are you related to this missionary? I said, Yes. That's Elias Monson, my grandfather's brother. And he said, as he wept, He's the missionary with his companion who brought my entire family into the Church. And then he reached up and kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> and then her mother, who is also Swedish, reached up with a tear in her eye and kissed me on the other cheek. And that had never happened to me before. They were always turning on the porch light. <laughs> Well, that's just a little about how the two of us met, and we were married way back in 1948, a splendid year, and it's been a wonderful marriage and continues to be so. I've thought long and prayed about what I'd say to you tonight, and I have come to a few conclusions, and I rather thought that if I were in the audience, what might I like to hear? So. First, I must compliment those who are here today putting a priority on being where you ought to be at this given time. And I'd like to speak to you. My young brothers and sisters, what a glorious sight you are! It's an honor and a privilege for me to be here with you. My responsibility is great, for I realize that your time is valuable, your talents are many, and your future is bright. Earnestly I seek heavenly help in responding to this challenge. I suppose every one of us in this congregation has had a few, oh, shall we call them, heart stoppers in his or her life. I know that I have. 
Before going forward with my general theme, I might mention one or two of them. The past General Conference marked 44 years since I was called to serve as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. In October of 1963, a few days following that conference, I met with my colleagues for the first time up in the fourth-floor room of the Salt Lake Temple, the Presidency and the Twelve. Everything was new to me. We were to partake of the sacrament that day. As we prepared to receive it, President David O. McKay said, and I quote, Before we partake of the bread and water, I'd like to invite our newest member, Brother Monson, to instruct the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve on the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will now hear from you, Brother Monson. That was a heart-stopper for me. I managed, barely. At the conclusion of the meeting, we moved to the luncheon reserved for the First Presidency and the Twelve, where we were to eat. As we sat around the table, President McKay said, Brother Monson, do you believe that William Shakespeare really wrote the sonnets attributed to him? Oh, yes, I responded. I do, President McKay. He then exclaimed, Wonderful! So do I. So do I. I thought to myself, I hope he moves away from Shakespeare. <laughs> I was a business major. <laughs> However, he turned again to me and said, Brother Monson, do you read Shakespeare? I said, occasionally. <laughs> Fine, he said. What is your favorite work of Shakespeare? I thought quickly, perhaps a more desperate prayer than a reasoned thought, and replied, Henry VIII, which is your favorite passage, he asked. I had a heart-stopping situation right there. Then I thought of Cardinal Wolsey, that man who served as king but neglected his God. And I recited to President McKay what Cardinal Wolsey lamented when he was shorn of all of his power. Quote, Had I but served my God with half the zeal with which I served my king, he in mine age would not have left me naked to mine enemies. President McKay said, Oh, I love that passage, too. <laughs> then he changed the subject. <laughs> for which I shall be eternally grateful. <laughs> As we journey through mortality, heart-stoppers will come to each of us. My young friends, I commend you for paying the price in time, in effort, in money, to obtain your education. Your parents may be sacrificing, skimping, going without that which they need to give you an education which will enable you to excel in today's world. Whatever your future pathway may be, may I suggest to you today four guideposts to assist in your respective journeys through school and through life itself. First, glance backward. Second, look heavenward. Third, reach outward. And fourth, press onward. Let us consider each in its turn. First, glance backward. A review of the past can be helpful. That is, if we learn from the mistakes and follies 
of those who have gone before and if we do not repeat them. John Toland, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, in summing up his monumental work, The Rising Sun, declared, I've done my utmost to let the events speak for themselves, and if any conclusion was reached, it was that there are no simple lessons in history, that it is human nature that repeats itself, not history. I've suggested merely a glance at the past, for it's not practical to think we can return. Some of you may be familiar with Thornton Wilder's classic drama, Our Town. If you are, you will remember the town of Grover's Corners. In the play, Emily Webb dies in childbirth, and we read of the lonely grief of her young husband, George, left with their four-year-old son. Emily does not wish to rest in peace. She wants to experience again the joys of her life. She's granted the privilege to return to Earth and to relive her twelfth birthday. At first, it's exciting to be young again, but the excitement wears off quickly. The day holds no joy now that Emily knows what is in store for the future. It's unbearably painful to realize how unaware she had been of the meaning and the wonder of life while she was alive. Before returning to her resting place, Emily laments, Do human beings ever realize life while they live it every minute? May each of us learn to appreciate the gift of life that we've been given, and in that context, at this time of year, when we will soon be celebrating Thanksgiving, I would urge all of us to glance backward in order to recognize those things for which we are thankful, and then to express appreciation to anyone to whom we owe a debt of gratitude. May we express thanks to parents for caring, for sacrificing, for laboring in our behalf. May we express thanks to friends, to professors, and to any others who have helped us along the way. May we express thanks to our Father in Heaven for the blessing of life and the chance to return to Him. And may we express thanks to Him for the gift of His only begotten Son, who died, that we might live. May the lessons we learn as we glance backward help us to live more fully each day of our future. Now that we've glanced backward, let us look heavenward. From the heavens came the gentle invitation, Look to God and live. We have not been left to wander in darkness and in silence, uninstructed, uninspired, without revelation. One who knew and taught this truth was President Harold B. Lee, who wrote this inscription on the title page of the triple combination of scripture which he presented to his teenage daughter, to my dear Maureen, that you may have a constant measure by which to judge between truth and the errors of man's philosophies and thus grow in spirituality as you increase in knowledge. I give you this sacred book to read frequently and cherish throughout your life. Lovingly, your father, Harold B. Lee. From the scriptures, from the prophets, 
comes counsel for our time as we look heavenward. You have the blessing of receiving your education at an institution governed by the principles and ideals of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where one of the goals of the university is to build testimonies of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and encourage living its principles. Looking heavenward should be our lifelong endeavor. Some foolish persons turn their backs on the wisdom of God and follow the allurement of fickle fashion, the attraction of false popularity, and the thrill of the moment. Their course of conduct resembles the disastrous experience of Esau, who exchanged his birthright for a mess of pottage. What are the results of such action? I testify to you today that turning away from God's teachings will bring broken covenants, shattered dreams, and crushed hopes. Such a quagmire of quicksand I plead with you to avoid, for you are of a noble birthright. Eternal life in the kingdom of our Father is your goal. Such a goal is not achieved in one glorious attempt, but rather is the result of a lifetime of righteousness, an accumulation of wise choices, even a constancy of purpose and lofty ideals. Amidst the confusion of our age, the conflicts of conscience, and the turmoil of daily living, an abiding faith becomes an anchor to our lives. By reaching heavenward and seeking Heavenly Father in personal and family prayer, we and our loved ones will develop the fulfillment of what the great English statesman William H. Gladstone described as the world's greatest asset and need, a living faith in a personal God. Such faith will illuminate our way as the lighthouse of the Lord. When you have an abiding faith in the living God, when your outward actions reflect your inner convictions, you have the composite strength of exposed and hidden virtues. They combine to give safe passage to whatever rough seas might arise. Wherever we may be, our Heavenly Father can hear and answer the prayer offered in faith. Many years ago, on my first visit to the fabled village of Saniatu in Samoa, so loved by President David O. McKay, my wife and I met with a large gathering of small children, oh, about five and six years of age, nearly 200 in number. At the conclusion of our messages to these shy yet beautiful youngsters, I suggested to the native Samoan teacher that we go forward with the closing exercises. As he announced the final hymn, I suddenly felt compelled to greet personally each of these children. My watch revealed time was too short for such a privilege, for we were scheduled on a flight out of the country, so I discounted the impression. Before the benediction was to be spoken, I again felt that I should shake the hand of each child. I made the desire known to the instructor, who displayed a broad and beautiful Samoan smile. In Samoan, he announced this to the children. They beamed their approval. The instructor then revealed the reason for his and their joy. 
He said, when we learned that a member of the Council of the Twelve was to visit us here in Samoa, so far away from church headquarters, I told the children if they would earnestly and sincerely pray and exert faith, like the Bible accounts of old, that the Apostle would visit our tiny village at Saniatu, and through their faith he would be impressed to greet each child with a personal handclasp. Tears could not be restrained as the precious boys and girls stood, walked shyly by, and whispered softly to us the sweet Samoan greeting, Talofa Lava. A profound expression of faith had been evidenced. In addition to that, however, they marched forward to the piano teacher playing in the shade of the old apple tree, and they sang that, four-part singing, as they marched up and shook our hands. The Samoans have a gift of song, and they belted out that number in the shade of the old apple tree they had never, ever seen an apple tree, but they surely sang as though they created it. <laughs> Remember that faith and doubt cannot exist in the same mind at the same time, for one will dispel the other. Should doubt knock at your doorway, just say to those skeptical, disturbing, rebellious thoughts, I propose to stay with my faith, with the faith of my people. I know that happiness and contentment are there. And I forbid you, agnostic, doubting thoughts, to destroy the house of my faith. I acknowledge that I do not understand the processes of creation, but I accept the fact of it. I grant that I cannot explain the miracles of the Bible, and I do not attempt to do so, but I accept God's word. I wasn't with Joseph, but I believe him. My faith did not come to me through science and I will not permit so-called science to destroy it. As we look backward, we will receive divine direction. I bear witness to you today that the sweetest spirit and feeling in all of mortality is when we have an opportunity to be on the Lord's errand and then to know for a surety that He has guided our footsteps. Very often on Sundays when I am not otherwise assigned, I will attend a sacrament meeting in one of the care centers located near Holiday, where we live. There, precious souls, all confined to wheelchairs, meet in an attitude of worship. Worthy priesthood holders from the surrounding area are called as bishops or branch presidents to preside over the care center units, and priests and deacons are assigned each week to bless and pass the sacrament and the wives of these Melchizedek priesthood leaders attend to helping elderly people partake of the sacrament. One cannot attend without being uplifted and inspired. One Sunday, a young man was to play the violin for the benefit of the elderly and incapacitated throng. As he began and as he played, his music became sweeter with each passing minute. Tears came to the young man's eyes as he later mentioned that the notes tumbled through his mind, one following the other in perfect succession, that he had never played with such pure inspiration as he had that particular day. He proffered, It wasn't my skill. It was the yearning of this special audience.
at the same time, in the same meeting, an elderly lady called out. They have no uh, compulsion to be silent. I'm cold. <laughs> a priest at the sacrament table said nothing, but he arose, walked to her side, then removed his jacket and placed it around the shoulders of the lady who was cold. To him I said, What you have done today you will ever remember. Your act of kindness reflects the nobility of your soul. You have been as the Good Samaritan who aided the helpless traveler on the road to Jericho. As we look heavenward, we inevitably learn of our responsibility to reach outward. To find real happiness, we must seek for it in a focus outside ourselves. No one has learned the meaning of living until he or she has surrendered his or her ego to the service of fellow man. Service to others is akin to duty, the fulfillment of which brings true joy. We do not live alone in our city, our nation, or our world. There is no dividing line between our prosperity and our neighbor's wretchedness. Love thy neighbor is more than a divine truth. It is a pattern for perfection. This truth inspires the familiar charge, go forth to serve. Try as some of us may, we cannot escape the influence our lives have upon the lives of others. Ours is the opportunity to build, to lift, to inspire, and indeed to lead. The New Testament teaches that it is impossible to take a right attitude toward Christ without taking an unselfish attitude toward men. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. We may think as we please, but there is no question about what the Bible teaches. In the Testament, the New Testament, there is no road to the heart of God that does not lead through the heart of man. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a true Latter-day Saint is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to provide for the widow, to dry up the tear of the orphan, to comfort the afflicted, whether in this church or in any other, or in no church at all, wherever he finds them. We cannot be careless in our reach. Lives of others depend upon us. The power to lead is indeed the power to mislead, and the power to mislead is the power to destroy. Many have come into the Church, or at least have come to know and respect the Church, because someone made the effort to reach outward. I share with you a treasured family experience which had its beginning back in 1959 when I was called to preside over the Canadian Mission headquartered in Toronto. Our daughter Anne, who is in the audience today, our only daughter, turned five shortly after we arrived in Canada. She saw the missionaries going about their work, and she too wanted to be a missionary. My wife demonstrated understanding by permitting Anne to take to class—she was only five years old—a few copies of the children's friend. That wasn't sufficient for Anne. She also wanted to take with her a copy of the Book of Mormon so that she might talk to her teacher, Miss Pepper, about the Church. I think it rather thrilling 
that just a few years ago, long years after our return from Toronto, we came home from a vacation and found in our mailbox a note from Miss Pepper, which read, Dear Anne, think back many years ago, I was your school teacher in Toronto, Canada. I was impressed by the copies of the children's friend which you brought to school. I was impressed by your dedication to a book called the Book of Mormon. I made a commitment that one day I would come to Salt Lake City and see why you talked as you did and why you believed in the manner you believed. Today, she wrote, I had the privilege of going through your visitor center on Temple Square thanks to a five-year-old girl who had an understanding of that which she believed. I now have a better understanding of the Church, of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. Miss Pepper died not too long after that visit. How happy our daughter Anne was when she attended the Jordan River Temple and performed the temple work for her beloved teacher to whom she had reached out so many years ago. And while we reach outward, we have the responsibility to press onward. No one has described this life as being easy. Indeed, it's become increasingly more difficult. The world seems to have slipped from the moorings of safety and drifted from the harbor of peace. Permissiveness, immorality, pornography, and the power of peer pressure cause many to be tossed about on a sea of sin and crushed on the jagged reefs of lost opportunities, forfeited blessings, and shattered dreams. Anxiously, we ask, is there a way to safety? Can someone guide us? Is there an escape from threatened destruction? The answer is a resounding yes. I counsel you, look to the lighthouse of the Lord. There's no fog so dense, no night so dark, no gale so strong, no mariner so lost, but what its beacon light can rescue. It calls this way to safety, this way to home. Press onward we must. The Apostle Paul described life as a race. He said, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes also wrote of this subject, saying, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Actually, the prize belongs to him or her who endures to the end. In the private sanctuary of one's own conscience lies that spirit, that determination to press onward and to measure up to the stature of true potential. But the way's rugged and the course is strenuous. So discovered a boy by the name of John Hillander from Jutabori, Sweden. John was a young adult. He had the same yearnings for the blessings of success as do all. But John is handicapped in that it is difficult for him to coordinate his motions. In an activity of young people in Kungsbaka, Sweden, John took part in an 800-meter running race. He had no chance to win. Rather, his was the possibility of being humiliated, mocked, derided, scorned. Perhaps John remembered 
another who lived long ago and far away? Wasn't he mocked? Wasn't he derided? Wasn't he scorned? But he prevailed. He won his race. Maybe John could win his. And what a race it is. Struggling, surging, pressing, the runners bolt far beyond John. <laughs> There's wonderment among the spectators. Who is this runner who lags so far behind? The participants on their second lap of this two-lap race pass John while he's but halfway through the first lap. Tension mounts as the runners press toward the tape. Who will win? Who will play second? Then comes the final burst of speed. The tape is broken. The crowd cheers. The winner is proclaimed. The race is over. Or is it? Who's this contestant who continues to run when the race has ended? He crosses the finish line on but his first lap. Doesn't he know he's lost? Ever onward he struggles. The only participant now on the track. This is his race. This must be his victory. No one among the vast throng of spectators leaves. Every eye is on this valiant runner. He makes the final turn and moves toward the finish line. There is awe. There is admiration. Every spectator sees himself running his own race of life. As John approaches the finish line, the audience as one rises to its feet. There's a loud applause of acclaim, stumbling, falling, exhausted, but victorious. John Hellander breaks the newly tightened tape. Officials are human, too. The cheering echoes for miles. And just maybe, just maybe, in the ear is carefully attuned of that great scorekeeper, even the Lord. Can he be heard to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Each of us is as a runner in the race of life. Comforting is the fact that there are many runners. Reassuring is the knowledge that our eternal scorekeeper is understanding. Challenging is the truth that each must run. But you and I do not run alone. We take confidence from the hymn. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I cannot, desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let us shed any thought of failure. Let us discard any habit or trait that may hinder. Let us ever press onward. Let us seek. Let us obtain the prize prepared for all, even exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God. Your future is bright. It's challenging. It awaits you. Do not venture forth alone. Louise Haskins counseled, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. 
And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. Safe journey, my beloved friends. As you glance backward, look heavenward, reach outward, and press onward, and find your way safely home again. This is my prayer for each of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Finishing the Race of Life. We've just heard from Thomas S. Monson. After the break, we'll return with Lynette B. Erickson for Flags, Faith, and Finishing the Race. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Finishing the Race of Life. Next is Lynette B. Erickson, BYU Associate Professor of Teacher Education at the time of this address, titled Flags, Faith, and Finishing the Race. My brothers and sisters, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you today. Some years ago, I taught third grade in Gilbert, Arizona, with a woman who had just moved from Indiana. Every year, she would, just before Memorial Day, she would hang black and white checkered flags from the ceiling of her classroom and create thematic studies for her students focused on the Indianapolis 500 car race. All of her excitement piqued my interest in race car driving and the Indy 500. To be honest, much of my curiosity came from the concept of driving in a circle for 500 miles. The first Indianapolis 500 race was in 1911, and this competition has continued to grow into the event that it is today. Regardless of the weather or other conditions, the race has taken place every year except during World War I and World War II when the track was used as a landing runway for U.S. aircraft. Drivers who participated in this race have to qualify for one of the limited number of prestigious spots available by proving that they have the knowledge, skills, experience, and resources that will allow them to win the race. The motivation for participating in the Indy 500 is not only a love of racing, but also the million-dollar prize that goes to the winner. If you have ever watched even part of one of these races, you know that those drivers go at breakneck speeds over 200 miles an hour around the track. They weave in and out of the other cars, cutting off some to get ahead in the race, and often skimming the wall to pass the competition. This is a dangerous sport, not only for the drivers, but for the support teams and spectators as well. Great precautions have been taken to reduce the risks to all those participating and watching the race. Yet over 40 drivers, 20 crew members, and 10 spectators have been killed since the first Indy 500. Although it first seemed to me that the cars were just running around in circles and going nowhere, I now realize that for the drivers who have qualified for the race, it is a carefully planned and calculated challenge to be the first to safely cross the finish line. I'd like to compare the Indy 500 to our lives. We go through life at a rapid pace through various experiences, many joyful and some challenging. 
our race began in the pre-earth life when we were introduced to and chose to be part of Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness. We qualified for the race in the grand councils of heaven when we stood with the Savior and chose agency and righteousness. Having qualified, we came into this life prepared with everything we need to succeed. Regardless of our conditions, our task is to participate in the race, safely cross the finish line, and receive the grand prize. Our motivation is the priceless prize designated for finishers of the race, that of eternal life. An important part of the race of life is that the creator of the plan knows who we are and has given us the necessary conditions and tools for successfully completing our race. Additionally, he has promised to guide us on our path. Isn't it wonderful to know that Heavenly Father knows us and loves us individually? We're promised in 1 Nephi chapter 9, verse 6, that, quote, The Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. Wherefore, he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. For behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of his words, unquote. Knowing this, we are ready for our race. During the Indy 500, race officials and pit crews have the job of tending the track, monitoring the conditions, clearing debris, and keeping the drivers apprised of the various conditions of the track, possible obstructions, or potential dangers. The way race officials communicate to the drivers is through the use of flags. Some of these flags have been standardized to mean the same thing to all the drivers, while others are unique to a particular driver and his team. It is up to the driver to know the signals and what they mean and heed the communication in order to race safely and effectively. For example, the green flag signals the beginning of the race. The yellow flag cautions drivers to slow down due to hazards on the track. And the yellow and red striped flag warns drivers that there is something on the track that could cause the car to lose control. The red flag tells drivers that conditions are too unsafe to continue in the race and the car must stop. The white flag signals to the driver that there is one lap remaining in the race, and the waving of the black and white checkered flag signals the driver that the scheduled distance has been met and the race is over. All the racers understand these flags. Individualized flags are used to communicate important messages with one driver at a time. For example, the black flag summons a car into the pits due to a mechanical problem or because the driver has disobeyed a rule. Each crew also has special flags that are used to communicate specific messages to their driver. On the racetrack, anything that takes the driver off course, slows him down, distracts him, or keeps him from moving toward the finish line is a pitfall. The objective during the race is to avoid as many of these pitfalls as possible. Oil on the track, gravel, encounters with other drivers, going too fast or too slow, or mechanical malfunctions all increase the risk of the driver being harmed, taken off the course, or not making it to the finish line. In life, we are all on a risky course, and at times we don't have the experience or perspective to see the pitfalls on the track ahead of us. As on a raceway, individuals who know the course provide signals that help us understand the conditions we are facing so that we can respond appropriately to them. Communication from the Lord comes in many forms as he warns us of pitfalls and dangers, as well as the joys and blessings that we can experience as we proceed through life. He also reminds us of the goals we are working toward and encourages us on our journey. 
In our race, the road conditions aren't always apparent, and on our own, we may not always perceive threats to our progress. Thankfully, the Lord warns us about pitfalls globally through His prophets, scriptures, and doctrine, but He also warns us individually through the quiet promptings of the Spirit to let us know how to adjust our journey. He's also given us a pit crew, so to speak, who help us avoid possible hazards on our course. Consider some of the pitfalls our crew has recently warned us about. Inspired leaders have warned us of the importance of protecting our bodies, minds, and spirits from those influences that would harm us or diminish our ability to stay on course. Just as the race car driver wears a sturdy helmet and clothing appropriate for his task, we are admonished to gird ourselves in the whole armor of God, in our dress, in our thoughts, and in our actions. Another pitfall that we have been warned of is the influence of media and technology in our lives. Like all powerful things, these can influence us both positively and negatively. The reason media present potential hazards is that their messages can distort, alter, block out, or supersede more eternal and important messages from a loving Heavenly Father. The media directly attack our sense of direction, our purpose, and our sense of who we are. We need to know that what is largely represented in media isn't reality in an eternal sense. Studying the scriptures, doing temple work, developing relationships with family and friends, participating in physical activities and rendering service are some of the things that we have been counseled to do in the plan that the Lord has for us. Oftentimes, we allow the media to have greater and greater influence in our lives, leaving little time to attend to more meaningful activities that keep us moving in the direction of the finish line. How much time do you spend studying the scriptures, praying, and listening to the word of the Lord in comparison to the time you spend texting, emailing, blogging, and listening to the messages of media? In the April 2009 conference, Elder Hales addressed another pitfall, the danger of debt. He counseled us all to learn to live, quote, joyfully within our means, to be content with what we have, avoid excessive debt, and diligently save and prepare for rainy day emergencies, unquote. You may say to yourself, hey, I'll think about that when I'm out of school, or when I'm married, or, better yet, when I have an income. But the flag of warning is for all of us to heed now. Each of us must be careful to live within our means and put even a little away for emergencies. Current economic conditions show the wisdom in this council. Following this flag of warning not only can protect us from hazards, but can bless us in ways that we cannot predict or imagine. In that same conference, other church leaders reminded us of the importance of attending the temple, honoring our covenants, serving others, exercising faith, and trusting in the Lord along with other important guidelines that will help us. As we heed the warnings and guidelines of the prophet and our leaders, we can avoid those things that would stand in the way of our goal of reaching the finish line. In the Indy 500, there are times in the race when the officials or the driver's team recognize that both the car and the driver need to be recharged and refueled. These pit stops are essential to be sure the engine is running efficiently, the tires have enough tread to be safe, fluid levels are full, and the driver is able to continue in the race. In our lives, we also have occasions when we need to take time out to refuel, repair, recharge, and realign our testimonies so we can better steer our course. The church leaders, the scriptures, caring family members, the Holy Ghost, and patriarchal blessings all provide substance and vision to keep us moving toward the finish line. 
Again, in the recent General Conference, President Monson taught us how to focus on the road beyond a possible pitfall. He spoke of how in the world today there is much to be depressed about. Financial downturns, social and moral decline, wars, natural disasters, and personal hardships. He admonished us, however, not to dwell on the negative in the world, rather to focus on the blessings we have as members of the Church. He encouraged us as he closed his remarks, quote, My beloved brethren and sisters, fear not. Be of good cheer. The future is as bright as your faith, unquote. When we are struggling on our raceway or when we are needing extra encouragement to keep going, the Lord often allows us to have experiences that help us to know that He is aware of us and helping us along. As only a loving Father can, He also provides individualized communication to us through answers to prayer. These messages are often very personal and direct. In the fall of 2000, I had an assignment to attend a series of meetings at BYU-Hawaii. I had my last chemotherapy treatment early the morning I was to fly out of Salt Lake. After I left the clinic, I went directly to the airport. By the time I arrived at the Los Angeles airport, I was feeling very ill. I checked my luggage, and by the time I got to the departure gate, I was absolutely miserable. I sat down and leaned against the wall, and I thought about the coach seats in the plane and how tight it would be with people on both sides of me. I felt even sicker as I contemplated the four- or five-hour flight. I silently thought, Heavenly Father, would it be so bad if I was in first class today? (laughs) The thought came and left. Almost immediately, though, the woman at the check-in counter came over to me and asked my name. Finding out that I was indeed Lynette Erickson, she asked if I would be willing to be bumped to the next flight to allow a family to fly together. Apparently, the flight was overbooked and the plane was filled to capacity. By this time, I was feeling so badly that I didn't care if I ever got to Hawaii, so I said yes. The arrangements were made, and the plane left the gate. Not ten minutes later, the same woman came back with my new tickets, and to my surprise, she informed me the next plane would be leaving in just 30 minutes. As she was leaving, she turned back to me and asked, By the way, do you mind if you're in seat 1A? 1A, of course, was in the first-class section of the plane. While some may say that this was a coincidence, in my mind it was nothing short of a miracle, and I knew that Heavenly Father was aware of me and my needs. Elder Bednar refers to these individualized answers to our prayers as tender mercies in our lives. Of this, he tells us, quote, The Lord's tender mercies are the very personal and individualized blessings, strength, protection, assurances, guidance, loving kindnesses, consolation, support, and spiritual gifts, which we receive from and because of and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's tender mercies do not occur randomly or merely by coincidence. We should not underestimate or overlook the power of the Lord's tender mercies. Unquote. What do these tender mercies look like in your life? How does the Lord answer your personal prayers? How does He affirm to you that you are on course? The answers to these questions are for you to ponder and then, as Elder Eyring instructed, to recognize how the Lord communicates His tender mercies to us and then to remember them. President Kimball reaffirmed that God not only knows and watches over us, but He often sends others to deliver His message to us. These members of our racing team include priesthood leaders who are aware of our needs and act upon spiritual promptings. 
When my daughter was competing for a prestigious award in her senior year of high school, it required several months of intense preparation and hard work. After passing several stages of competition, she reached the point of being one of 15 finalists for the award. It was a stressful time for her, and she was concerned about being able to demonstrate her abilities and talents. One Sunday morning before church, our stake president made a point of congratulating her on her achievement. He then took her hand and looked her squarely in her eyes and said, No matter what happens, we know who you are. To my daughter and to all of us, that was a crowning point. Yes, she knew what she had put into preparing for the award and also what she had gained from it. Unlike the Indy 500, the final burst of speed was not the measure of her success. No matter what the judges decided in their assessment, she was a winner. And those who love her, including the Lord, recognized her accomplishments. One of the Lord's most powerful ways to relay messages to us is through the Holy Ghost. If we have prepared ourselves to receive and follow communications, we can more successfully avoid the dangers along our course, and we will feel the peace and joy of the journey. The messages from the Holy Ghost are quiet and still. Therefore, we must be willing to tune out the world and continually listen for and to His promptings. In his devotional speech here at BYU in January 2007, Elder Boyd K. Packer admonished, quote, You live in an interesting generation where trials will be constant in your life. Learn to follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost. It is to be a shield and a protection and a teacher for you. When we're looking for direction, guidance, and encouragement in our lives, reading and pondering the scriptures allows us to know the will of the Lord for us. In 2 Nephi chapter 32, verse 3, we are encouraged to, quote, feast upon the words of Christ, for behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do, unquote. As we read the words of those who have traveled the course before us, we find courage and strength to learn from them and finish the race. Our patriarchal blessings also provide warnings and guidance tailored just for our specific needs. Elder Richard Allen said, quote, These blessings are inspired and are personal revelations to the recipient. Patriarchal blessings are a guideline or similar to a road map that indicates the paths that may be traveled and destinations that may be reached if we stay within those paths. They may bring comfort and joy and encouragement when we have need to look, to listen, and to feel of the contents of these blessings so that we may go forward on life's journey, not alone, but with the accompanying spirit of our Father in heaven." Unquote. What a blessing to recognize that the Lord has a plan for us and that He has always and will continue to guide us, to warn us, and to encourage us on our course. We have the guides and the tools to get us there. But let's be realistic. This race isn't easy. It's grueling. The Indy 500 is 200 times around a circular track, and it's dangerous. Our race has eternal significance. It is our test, and the course isn't flat, nor is it straight. Trials will come, and life will be challenging, but we need to know and remember Heavenly Father is there, and we must have faith that the flags and guides that He has prepared will help us achieve our ultimate goal. In our race, to the finish line, we need to anticipate and be ready for unexpected events that may hamper us on our course and detour us from our goal. Sometimes we don't anticipate that life doesn't always go as we planned or dreamed. When this happens, we may be tempted to think that Heavenly Father has forsaken us and reject the flags and guides that have been provided. We cannot do that. We must stay on the course and keep our focus on the finish line, 
Elder Oaks gently reminds us that, quote, many important things will occur in our lives that we have not planned, and not all of them will be welcome. Even our most righteous desires may elude us or come in different ways or at different times than we have sought to plan, unquote. Like each of you, I've had my share of unexpected detours in my race. I had planned on marrying shortly after college, having 24 children, and being a stay-at-home mom. Instead, I married old and only for a very short time, had one child, and am a woman with a profession. It wasn't how I planned or even imagined my life, but I have been richly blessed with perspective and patience, understanding of the Lord's timing, and a lovely daughter who's my friend. The lesson here is to keep going. Keep building the kingdom. Keep improving yourself. Stay worthy of His blessings and His love, and stay on the course. Remember, His timetable doesn't always look like ours. Disappointments will happen. You can count on it. But if you keep yourself focused on that finish line and what is really important, your disappointments will eventually fade. Elder Quentin Cook encourages us by saying, quote, Even though the journey may be difficult, the destination is truly glorious. Unquote. Sometimes we might think of trials as pitfalls when in fact they might be the very things that help us stay on the course. President Irene taught us that none of us is exempt from trials and challenges. He helps us understand that we must all deal with adversity, and even though trials aren't something we seek after, they are times when we can exercise our faith and grow from the experiences. He also taught us that we have to learn to get through the trials, that there are lessons to be learned, and that we can't bypass or skip certain parts of the race just because they are unpleasant. During these times, we need to pray like Nephi for our strength to be increased to get through and to learn the needed lessons the trial affords. Knowing that the end of our destination is the greatest gift that we can receive, we must be faithful and press on to achieve our goal. President Uchtdorf urged us to remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to our problems and challenges and that we must continue faithful. Quote, Brothers and sisters, we have to stay with it. We don't acquire eternal life in a sprint. This is a race of endurance. We have to apply and reapply the divine gospel principles. Day after day, we need to make them part of our normal life." Unquote. I live in a community where many of my dear friends are dealing with physical challenges of varying types and degrees, the kind of trials that most of us may eventually have to accept as we progress into the twilight of our lives. I'm impressed and humbled that in spite of their challenges, they continue constant in their race along the course always focused on the finish line. These experienced ones have the wisdom to know that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. My seasoned senior friends and neighbors are noble examples of those who continue fighting a good fight, pressing forward to finish their course and keeping the faith. In the history of the Indy 500, there has only been one winner each year. But fortunately, that isn't true in the race of life. In our race, the winner's circle is not limited to just one person. In fact, the circle will expand to encompass all those who finish the race. My brothers and sisters, my testimony to you today is that our Heavenly Father has a perfect plan for us. His plan is for all of us to live eternally with Him. We have qualified for the race of this earth life, and though the race course may be at times rough and obstacles may get in our way, we each must navigate our own course successfully. It is up to us to exercise our faith, follow the flags and the warnings that He provides, and keep moving to the finish line. 
Keep moving, brothers and sisters. Watch for the flags along the way. Heed their messages of warning and encouragement. Apply them in your lives, and you will cross the finish line. You will achieve the prize. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Finishing the Race of Life, with thoughts from Thomas S. Monson and Lynette B. Erickson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.